Hello and welcome to Coaching Trees, a podcast for coaches by coaches. I'm your host, Dave Hoger, and today's guest is Brandon Childs. Coach Childs is a very influential person in my coaching journey. He was our head coach at Eastern for my freshman through junior year and now serves as a head coach at York College of Pennsylvania in Central PA. Coach Childs is a man of passion. He develops relationships. He works really hard at his craft and what he does. And he does a great job of impacting young men, both on and off the field, in their future and in the short term. These are all things he talks about today in his interview, and I'm really excited to share this content with you because I think it's going to really impact the way that you view the profession of coaching. So without further ado, let's jump right into the interview. I hope you enjoy. Coach Childs, welcome to the podcast. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Dave. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, great to have you on today and was really excited to get you on the podcast here and talk a little bit about your time in the profession of coaching. Um, you know, obviously I, I got to see the start of your head coaching career as, as a player. And so, you know, see kind of followed your path, um, you know, since then. And I've really been excited to see kind of where you've taken the two programs you've been at the helm of and, um, you know, really excited to hear just some of the things that you have to say about the profession of coaching and where it's taken you. Um, so without, you know, getting too much more into it, let's, uh, let's get started. So I wanted to start by talking a little bit about your early life and your upbringing and uh, just talk about, I guess, the, the role sports played in your, your upbringing as a kid? Yeah. Um, well, I, I've been, I mean, I don't know, just growing up in, the, I guess the early to mid eighties, like sports, you just played three sports, you know? Um, so growing up, I played soccer, basketball, and lacrosse, uh, and I wrestled, uh, till about eighth or eight, eighth grade or so. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, sports, I have an older brother. And so I was just kind of the tag along brother. Um, going through, uh, you know, my upbringing, playing sports. And, you know, when I was younger, I was, I was the best stages of my athletic career were between the ages of like five and 10, <laughs> you know, before size really took, uh, took a hold of it. And so um, there was a little, a little bit of like trials and tribulations because I went from as a real little kid um, being a, you know, a pretty good player, whether it was the soccer field or lacrosse or wrestling to then in middle school when I was one of the smallest guys and having to take quite a back seat, um, which, which, which happened in high school a little bit too. Um, so I learned a lot by playing sports, you know, growing up. Um, um, and, uh, but, but lacrosse was always kind of the one, um, you know, I used to, my dad, um, my dad brought home, uh, my dad worked with a woman who videotaped on VHS tapes uh, the 1988 lacrosse final four, which the semifinal in 1988 was, um, UPenn and Syracuse. And that was the, that was the air gate game. And, uh, so I still have it. I still have a VHS tape from 1988 with the, with the air gate. Um, and as a kid, I used to wake up and watch those tapes. And then she did it for the 89 final four too. So my dad got the 89 tapes and that was, um, Hopkins Syracuse in the championship game with, um, Petromala and the Gates and Marichek and 
Um, so I would watch these tapes. I'd wake up on a Saturday when I had a game and I would wash my cleats um, while watching these games. <laughs> Um, and I think if it weren't for that woman bringing my dad those tapes, maybe I'd have a whole different path because I, I watched film at a really, really young age. <laughs> um, but, but lacrosse was always kind of the one that I seemed to enjoy the most. That's awesome. And uh, you, you talk about your dad and, um, you know, I think during, uh, I know just from, from getting to know you over the years that uh, your dad had a pretty major impact on who you are as a person and, um, can you talk about his, his role in maybe getting into coaching or sports or just the way that he impacted you? Um, you know, in, in addition to that, maybe talking a little bit about some of the coaches that you remember from those early days, if any, that had an impact on you. Yeah. So um, my dad never played lacrosse. Um, he was a basketball player and um, he, uh, he never coached me either. He coached some of my brother's teams, but he, I never had my dad as a coach. Um, or if I did, um, it, it was a forgetful experience. <laughs> but I never had my dad as a coach and um, in terms of like being on the field. But um, I'm now, I guess I'm to this day, I mean, I'm about to turn 40 and I'm, I'm never hesitant to ask my dad for input and advice. Um, and, um, you know, and maybe it's a benefit that my dad didn't have some sort of illustrious lacrosse career because I'll ask him, you know, about our team, you know, he'll, he comes to almost every game as you probably can remember. Um, and, and he'll provide some insight and stuff. So, but, but whether it be, you know, parenting or as a husband or um, I mean, quite literally anything, I mean, I could be trying to make a big purchase and I'll ask my dad for his advice. So, so he's just always been, um, more of a life coach to me than than he was any kind of a, a sports coach for me. Um, but my, both my parents, my mom and my dad, had a unique um, kind of way of raising us where you just always knew they were there for you, but um, they weren't overbearing. I didn't have any. I, I never went to a sporting event or took a test in school worried about what would happen if I didn't perform well when I came home. And, you know, maybe that's the best thing that um, they could have done for us was um, not apply any kind of pr pr um, pressure to succeed or, or what have you. But, but no, I mean, till this day, my dad's the best coach I've ever had that I guess I didn't have. Um, as far as coaches, you know, in my, my upbringing and growing up, I was really fortunate that I went to a, a private school in Baltimore that like, you know, your coaching staff when you were in fifth grade, you know, was, was pretty good, you know, so yeah. I've had a lot of good coaches and a lot of good teammates and, you know, I kid around that the best team I ever played on was in 1994. Um, you know, I was like 12 years old or something and um, just littered with like, um, you know, like my team when I was 12 had like six or seven, you know, ACC players on it. <laughs> it was pretty cool. Um, and so I've had a lot of good coaches and a lot of good mentors and growing up and playing at St. Paul's in Baltimore, I, I had the unique opportunity actually to play for. So for like, a little bit of history lesson with St. Paul's lacrosse, but for like, you know, 30 years, St. Paul's had two coaches, but it happened in like four different stints. And so um, Mitch Whiteley was the coach at St. Paul's for ages. And then his son, Timmy went to play at Virginia. And when that happened, he stepped aside and coach Bracado took over. And then um, coach Brock was the coach for a while. Um, and then, um, and then uh, he moved to Denver. And when that happened, coach Whiteley came back. Hmm. And then Coach Whiteley was the coach again until his daughter went to play at Virginia. And when his daughter left, he stepped down again. And then Coach Brock came back. 
<laughs> and so it was, um, so I actually fell in the first of that switch. So I had coach Bricado as a junior in high school and then coach Whiteley as a senior in high school, mm-hmm. two fantastic coaches, but two really different styles, um, which I think has helped me too, because, um, you know, I, I got to play under two really good coaches in terms of the X's and O's and all that kind of stuff, but, but, but two different personalities and two different styles, which was cool. Um, so I guess that's kind of my upbringing um, yeah. in, terms of, in terms of some coaches that I had kind of before college. Sure. Yeah. And so that, that leads me into talking about your, your college experience. Obviously, you know, you went to Lynchburg, played for coach Steve Gadelka, one of the best to ever do it. Um, so what, what was your experience playing for him? And, you know, I know you coached with him for a bit too. How'd you, how did that, I guess, set up your framework to either desiring to be a coach or get into coaching? Um, yeah, t- I guess talk a little bit about that experience. Yeah, you know, I still think it's, you know, it's one of the best decisions I've made in my life, you know, choosing to go to Lynchburg. And um, it's funny how when you're 18, now I know so much about it because I'm on the other side of it. But when you're 18, like, you're following your gut a lot, you know, and I think that's the advice I would give most folks is to, you know, follow kind of where you're being called to go and, and then take that leap of faith and it'll turn out pretty good. And I really think that's all it was. But then as I got, got to Lynchburg and I started, um, it was the first time I ever viewed coaching as like, uh, cause I saw it, you know, like a 24 hour a day, seven day a week kind of a thing. And that's when it really started thinking like, man, I should, I should give this some, some thought. I don't know if I'd be a coach today if I didn't go to Lynchburg. Mm. Um, I think that's where it all kind of happened. And some of it was, um, you know, and I, I would say this, whether this was kind of the, the, the point of your podcast or not, but the coaching tree that I happened to just stumble into when I picked my, my college allowed a lot of opportunities for me to like work camps and network and, and see and, and learn from a lot of the game's best coaches and that all kind of happened my sophomore, junior, and senior year. And so Coach Kadelka would, you know, help me, you know, network to, to work camps. And so as a, as a college kid, I would travel the country in the summer working all the recruiting camps and educational camps and things like that. And that's where I really learned, you know, I guess how to coach, um, you know, but, but also saw firsthand, um, you know, what a life it could be to, to be a coach. Um, you know, as far as Coach Kadelka goes, um, you know, I, I say this all the time, I guess behind his back. I don't know if I've ever said it to his face, but um, he could coach any team in any sport and their team would win. Um, it's it's incredible. I, I, mm. I, I actually think, you know, in a weird way, um, it, it, I just I almost kind of want to see it happen. You know, I want I want some sort of <laughs> chance to happen where he has to coach like the, the women's basketball team for a year. Um, because, you know, and this isn't to shortchange his ability to coach like the X's and O's of the game of lacrosse, but I think what makes him so unique and different is um, motivating the team, but motivating each individual um, throughout the process. Um, and the one thing I'll say, you know, we play against him every year, so I see it firsthand, is like the, the kids that are freshmen in their program get so much better by the time they're sophomores Mm. and by the time they're seniors like it's it's almost like unbelievable to imagine how far those players have developed in their game um and so he's obviously teaching them and making them better players but he's motivating them in just the right way 
you know, to continue to work on their craft. Um, you know, I, I'd be, you'd be hard pressed to find a Lynchburg player that, you know, wasn't, um, you know, you know, considerably better player when, when they graduated than, than when they got there. Um, and, you know, that's just one piece of the whole puzzle. I mean, he's, he's as loyal as they come. He's as hardworking as they come. And um, just, you know, like, <laughs> um, you'd be hard pressed to find someone that doesn't, you know, respect coach Kadalka off the field is in terms of the man that he is. And, um, and because of that, his teams, they just, they perform when, when they're needed to. Um, and so I think he could do it, you know, in any sport, I think he's just an exceptional coach. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that. And I definitely from an outsider's perspective, uh, see the same thing. Um, so, with coaching, uh, you know, you, you spend some time working camps, learning from other coaches. Uh, you also were an assistant at Lynchburg and then at Dickinson under Dave Webster. Can you talk a little bit about how those experiences under those coaches prepared you to be a head coach when you got uh, that opportunity? Yeah, so, you know, I guess kind of like what I was saying about high school, but um, Coach Webster at Dickinson is like, um, he's, he's one of the best people I know. I was just really fortunate that like, not only was I learning um, from two really good coaches, really good recruiters, but also just really good men, you know? So like when I got to Dickinson, um, you know, I was like going to Coach Webster's house for dinner and like around his family. And, you know, it was like, um, you know, it was almost like I was, I was like, developing my my skill set as a coach but also kind of developing my skill set as all the next stages of life that I was about to enter um which is kind of a side note but it was it's something that I certainly don't take for granted um it was really cool I you know I don't um I definitely don't take for granted kind of the mentoring that I had off the field but as far as on the field goes um or, or recruiting or whatever coach Kadalka and coach Webster are very um, I mean, there's so many similarities, but, but they're very different at the same time. And, um, you know, they're both fiery and they want to win. I think they have different types of skill sets and different demeanors about them. Um, and, uh, you know, I hope that somehow I ended up somewhere in the middle of all of that. And there were some things that I took from coach Kadelka that for playing there and then coaching there for a year, you know, I, I don't, I don't particularly respond well to losing. <laughs> sort of a cop out of saying I'm a sore loser, but, you know, I think in general, like our team, our team here, you know, responds well after a loss. Um, and uh, I think a lot of that stems from, you know, having worked with coach Kadoka and played there um, just responding to some, some hard times and some adversity and some losses, I think is something that, um, you know, I, I think everyone that's ever played there takes and, and applies to their life, but because I'm a coach, you know, it happens, you know, a lot. Um, coach Webster, like if I had to th pick up one thing that I, you know, I, I don't know that there's a better recruiter in college lacrosse, like all three divisions than coach Webster. He just is where I first saw, you know, um, just recruiting based on relationships at its finest. Um, and, um, and maybe, maybe that's shortchanging everywhere else I've been, but I think it just, he, the first thing he said to me when I got there was don't ever ask a recruit what other schools he's looking at hmm. 
or um, what, what schools have reached out to them. Because the second they answer that question, it's going to kind of cloud your own judgment. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh, Hopkins called this kid? Like, man, we got to have him. Um, when in reality, just trust your own judgment, you know? And, and it's like little things like that um, that he implemented into his recruiting um, that I took away that I just, I, I really valued. Um, but again, trying to pick out one or two things that these men do well really shortchanges them because you know, Coach Webster is a heck of a lot more than just a good recruiter. Yeah. And Coach Kadelka is a heck of a lot more than just a, you know, a fiery winner. Um, you know, but, but those are two things that I think um, had I not um, you know, gone to Lynchburg or, or, or worked at Dickinson, you know, I'm not so sure I'd be any good at having not seen them both do it cer certainly better than I ever could do it. Yeah. Let's press into that a little bit. I, I think that one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about that, um, you know, I, I've just experienced through knowing you and, and having played for you. Um, I, you know, I always tell people, I think that coach Childs could sell ice to an Eskimo, um, you know, and that you, really uh, take pride in, I think, your approach to the recruiting process. So what does that look like for you? What, um, what tools, techniques, you know, wh or I guess, what is your process of identifying and like building that relationship in recruiting? Yeah, well, I mean, first and foremost, I like to go out on the road myself. Um, I like to watch the games myself. I know a lot of coaches kind of their assistants are traveling all around and then the assistants kind of bring back the names of the players. And then, you know, the head coach is quote unquote, the closer. Um, I kind of like to see it through from start to finish. Um, and um, so I, I, uh, I enjoy, you know, um, getting out and watching the kids play and I, and I enjoy kind of coming to my own conclusion and my own evaluation and kind of watching. Um, and then I like, my assistants, you know, to challenge that, you know, and I like our, um, us to, you know, have conversations, um, you know, about players and, and kind of pick each other's critique, each other's, um, uh, thoughts on each, on each player that we're recruiting and working with. Um, so that's kind of the first part of it. Um, and when we go out and we're watching players play, you know, there's a difference between, you know, I always say this to, to our team. I say it to recruits when they're here, like, we're not interested in recruiting the 40 most talented players. You know, oftentimes the most talented team doesn't win the national championship. Um, or let me say it this way. Oftentimes the most talented collection of players doesn't win the national championship. It's the right team and the right combination. And so we recruit um, all different types of um, kind of roles on our team. And so to me, recruiting is this giant puzzle that you're putting together. And you really can't have, you know, uh, well, it's impossible to have 50 first team All-Americans. And so you can't recruit that way. Yeah. Um, and I think if you look at the highest levels of any sport, you'll see that, you know, you'll see the, the benefit of that, that role player. Because um, if it was just about the talent, like Virginia basketball, you know, wouldn't be Virginia basketball or Villanova or Gonzaga. Like look at big time basketball. You would just be able to roll over like Kentucky, Duke and North Carolina and, you know, um, Kansas every year, you know, and that's just not the case. And so we try to, when we go out and we watch kids and, and, and identify the fit for our program, um, you know, it's, it's trying to find, okay, are they talented? And then how does that talent fit into, you know, our, our, our plan? Um, and then that's just the first part of it. The next part becomes, okay, so how, okay, 
So let's just say, you know, all right, he's a, you know, left-handed attackman that finishes really well. We really need one of those in this class. Well, that's only, you know, 25% of it. The, the, the rest of it is how does he align with our culture and, and the direction our program is going? Um, that alignment is really, really important to whether or not you're ever going to see the fruits of the kid's talent. Um, so being talented is great, but you're never going to, you're never going to be able to utilize that talent unless he aligns with your team's culture. So that becomes the next part of it, which is the relationship side of it. Um, and, and trying to, um, you know, be unapologetic and candid with recruits about, um, you know, who we are, um, what we're all about and kind of what our non-negotiables are. Um, and so in the process of all that, um, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm, I think the reason that you could say I could sell ice to Eskimos is because I really believe in what our product is. And so I don't necessarily love your expression because uh, unless I got the best ice, you know what I mean? Um, and Eskimos, you know, had some lousy ice. And so they wanted to upgrade their ice, in which case I guess I could sell ice to Eskimos, but I just believe in, um, you know, when I was at Eastern and I was recruiting there, I just believed in the school. I believed in the mission of the school. I thought the location uh, provided opportunities from folks from outside the East Coast to have a four-year experience that was going to be so different than what they grew up experiencing. And I just believed at the end of the day that all of that would be just a really cool fit for the group that I was recruiting. And if I got in the process with someone and I just think, okay, well, this isn't the right fit for them, we just move on to the kid that it is the right fit for. And that's why I'm able to recruit with as much like, you know, I guess passion in that relationship as possible because I really believe that the opportunity that we're presenting to them is something really worthwhile for them. And then here at York, it's different. The school is different than Eastern. The niche is different. The mission is different and the location is different. But there are things here that makes this four-year experience really special for um, you know, some of the young men that we're recruiting. And so it just allows for me to be passionate about it and, and I guess sell it to use your words um, in a way in which I really believe I'm, I'm offering them something that's you know, gonna be really impactful for the rest of their lives. No, that's good. And yeah, no, I uh, definitely didn't mean to call you just a salesman. I think you're a very passionate person. Uh, so I apologize for that, but <laughs> um, no, that's great. And so let's, let's uh, talk about culture then, because you, you've mentioned a couple of times in, you know, what you bring to the recruiting process is do they align with our culture? I think culture is a buzzword in coaching, right? I think you get a lot of kids that want to know about it, want to talk about it. Um, and frankly, at the end of the day, want to experience it. So what does culture mean to you? Uh, and, and why is it important to the framework of building your, your team? Yeah. So I don't think, you know, the reason culture is a buzzword and, and, and it's almost like this undefinable thing or that varies from place to place to place is because it can't be talked about. Um, culture isn't, you know, slogans on the back of a t-shirt or put your hands in here and say whatever on three and posters in your locker room. Like that isn't a culture. A culture is just your habits. Like in order to really um, convey what your program's culture is or your school or your business or your family's culture, you have to kind of live it and be in the day of the life of it. And, um, and so it's really hard to talk about. Um, and I try to, 
um, like the best thing that we can do in recruiting is have a kid come here and experience it a little bit. Um, and so now with the pandemic and everything, we haven't been able to do that. I've, I've really tried to work on, you know, how to, how to talk about culture mm-hmm. and our culture in particular. And so that's the hardest part of all of it is it really can't be talked about. It has to be um, seen because culture's how you're living, you know, and, and what your habits are. And so um, now um, to, to, to kind of get your team in, in the right path of aligning them in, in towards, towards a certain culture, um, you know, I, I think, and, and none of this is original thought. I, I am a culture, I'm not a culture stealer. Our culture is very unique to us. And I think it is just who we are and our ethos, ethos of our program. But in terms of developing it and, and, and the formula for it, I'm a stealer in that regard. Um, and so none of this is original thought, but I've come to um, kind of believe it as my own that um, you have to have principles. Um, you have to have core beliefs that everyone in your team agrees to. And I'm not talking about rules. I'm talking about like, what do we stand for? Um, and there can't be too many of them. And so for us, there's three. Um, and then those beliefs drive your behaviors or how you act or behave or your habits. And then those behaviors give you your outcome. And when I was coaching you and my first, you know, several years here at York, um, I think I was, um, I think I was decent enough about kind of communicating what the beliefs are. Um, and, but then just focused on the outcomes and then the stuff in between, um, you know, I, I don't know, but nevertheless, you know, I think the last several years here, um, I realized that it, 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 it isn't that difficult. You have your three core beliefs, you associate them with behaviors and actions that you can do every day. And then the outcomes take care of themselves and you can't focus on the outcomes. You focus on, okay. It's like the beliefs, right. Takes for me, picking the three core beliefs of York's program took about 250 days from when (laughs) I started like kind of, okay, you know, what do we want this all to be about? And it wasn't just me, assistants were involved, our team was involved, the past was involved, former players, but I spent close to a year coming up with three core beliefs that we felt like York was all about. Um, And then the end result, what we want the goal to be or whatever, our vision for our program was probably already set. So that took a day, right? And then all the stuff in between, the habits um, and your behaviors, that's the part that's impossible to talk about. Mm. It's, it's like, because it just changes every day. And so to me, your culture is in the hands of the choices that every individual member of that team makes. And we all make a thousand choices a day. So when I'm talking to the team or I'm talking to recruit about this, I always say like your first choice every day is when that alarm clock goes off. And as a college kid, like you can hit snooze, you know, or you can just get up and get started. Right. And then you get, let's say you made the right choice. Um, now you're at, you walk into class. And now you got another choice in front of you. You can sit in the first row of the class or you can go sit in the back. Right. And then, you, you know, after that class ends, you have your next choice. I could go back and take a nap or I could go to the library and get ahead, right? It's like literally your day is just all these choices. And so we don't make rules. There's no rule at York that says you have to sit in the front row of the class. And there's no rule that says like, you can't skip class. Like 
we don't have very many rules at all, right? We're just training our athletes to make these choices. And then we're crystal clear about like what the standard is. Mm -hmm. So seldom, and I realize like standard and rule may sound like the same to most people. And I understand that, but to me, they're, they're different. Um, and so there's a standard, um, that we ask our guys to, to live by when they make all these choices, you know, and that isn't even to where like the weekend and the evening starts, you know, and then you got to manage all those choices. And so again, because we can't talk about like, you, you can't put all those habits into words other than just humming up with a bunch of quotes or, you know, whatever rules and whatever. Um, it's really hard to communicate what your culture is, but it's really easy to see it. You know, you yeah. should be able to follow a York lacrosse player around for, for, you know, 24 straight hours and by the choices that they made over those thousand choices in that one day, understand pretty clearly what the culture is. Um, so, um, but it starts with those three core beliefs and then believing them and prioritizing them over everything else to then creating those choices that are kind of in the, in alignment to those core beliefs. And I believe if you do that consistently throughout every day, then your outcomes will be successful. Yeah, no, that's good. I appreciate that. Um, so I, I want to uh, switch over into a little bit of a different direction and talk a little bit more about um, you as a coach and your, uh, your kind of personal drive. So um, I guess to put it bluntly, what drives you? Oh, man. Um, I don't know. It's probably like this giant combination of everything. Um, so, you know, I think it's probably changed over the years, but like who you are when you're 25 still exists in you even. Um, but I guess the first thing that popped into my head is like, um, I think I'm wired a certain way. You know, there's people that are kind of the uptight, got to get things done, like, you know, get a to-do list and checking things off, like gives them a sense of accomplishment. And then there's the laid back type um, who don't really have to make a list and they can just kind of go about their day. And, and, and if they didn't get everything done that day, that's okay. There's tomorrow. Well, I'm definitely the first mm -hmm. in those two people. And, and there's part of me, like, I think a lot of my best friends and a lot of the people that I find myself like wanting to hang out with um, are the are the latter. You know, like I wish I was a little more laid back, and I wish I was a little more. Um, but some of it, I'm just like driven to accomplish things. Um, and so, and and I married someone just like it. So, you know, like a typical Saturday or Sunday, like I love mowing my lawn. And I'll go back to Coach Webster. Like Coach Webster, when I was working at Dickinson, he would he would talk about his lawn and mow his lawn. <laughs> and I used to tease him about it all the time. And now it's so funny because like when I'm not working, I want to be doing something on my lawn. There's like a sense of accomplishment that I'm seeking. So that's first and foremost is I think I'm just wired a certain way in that, that regard that I'm, I don't know, driven is the right word, but I'm, I'm certainly like seeking um, the endorphins of checking something off the list. So that's kind of the first thing. The second thing is like, going back to growing up, like I got cut from teams. Like I was always kind of like smaller. Um, it was weird. Like as the youngest kid, I remember being like playing soccer when I was like five. And I mean, it's like cringe saying it, but just to make the point, like as a five-year-old playing soccer, I just dominated. Like I understood 
when the kids would all cluster to one side that the ball was going to like squirt out eventually. It would just squirt to me and then I'd have a breakaway and I'd score. Like, <laughs> so when I was five, I was like really good. And my grandmother told me I was good and people picked me at recess. And, but then like this eighth grade, ninth grade, 10th grade happened to me where I wasn't any good. No one told me I was any good. Like I got cut from teams <laughs> and it certainly provided a little bit of like a chip on my shoulder that quite frankly, isn't all that healthy. And I, I, I like, this is what I was gonna say, is like, I, I regret a lot of things from ages like 18 to like 25 to maybe 30, where I was just seeking validation because I had it when I was a real little kid and then I didn't, and then I wanted it back. And I probably wasn't the world's best person during all of that. Um, and so, there, but it exists, you know, this like, you know, proving people wrong and, and, and such that um, that probably exists that drives me a little bit or accomplishing things that people didn't think I could accomplish, something like that, I guess. Um, but, um, but yeah, and, and, then, and then, you know, playing at, like Coach Goodell is competitive in everything that he does. Um, so like, you know, floor hockey and pickup basketball and just um, like we, we ran a camp together in December and thanks to Mikey Thompson at Christopher Newport, like there were goals set up at half at, at uh, lunch break for the coaches. And we started playing three by as coaches. And like, I wanted to win during that. Like there is this competitive streak to me that I think probably existed. Um, that coach Cadelco probably took to a whole nother level that exists too. And that's not just like to win games, but you know, like recruiting. I mean, I think part of the reason, um, this is such a specific example, but like, part of the reason I go to a million events is because when I was a young grad assistant and stuff and would go out on the road, Jim Berkman at Salisbury was at every event and his team was the best in the country. And he was at every event and uh, at York, not anymore, but at the time, like we were in their league and I was like, all right, well, if the best coach in the country and the best coach in our league is at every event, I better be at every event. And so my peers drive me. Right. Um, and, and people, my wife like makes me more driven um, and challenges me and, so I think if you surround yourself by good people, and this is kind of ultimately what I wanted my first answer to be, but it would have just been so easy to say this and then just move on. When in yeah. reality, there's some unhealthy things that drive <laughs> me. That's part of the, the messiness of it. But um, when you surround yourself by people who do it well and do it right, it certainly drives you to aspire to be more like them. Sure. No, that's awesome. Um, so when you compile all that and you think about all those things that drive you, what, uh, you talked about outcomes a little bit earlier. What, how do you define success both personally for your team? Yeah. Um, I, I try, I don't want to be like too cliche about all of this. Um, so I, I want to give you a real answer. And so I'm pausing to kind of compile what this real answer should be. I think, um, I think long-term success, so I'll start with the cliche answer. Yeah. You know, I really, really, I really want that the athletes that I coach to be really good at what they're doing when they're my age, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70 years old. Like I want them to be, you know, awesome doctors and lawyers and teachers. And I want them to be even awesomer. I realize that's not a word. Um, you know, um, fathers and husbands and, um, 
and um, you know, I, I really want that. And I think like to me, you know, again, as cliche as it sounds like to me, that, that long-term success to me is, is kind of what all of this is about in terms of my role as a coach. And I, I really do believe that, but I think that answer doesn't necessarily speak to short-term success, which to me very much matters as well. Um, and so um, success on the field matters to these kids and it, sh you know, it, it does. And so we can't just say like our goal is to make them, you know, the best 40 year olds and not focus on, you know, what we're doing when they're 20 year olds and, and short-term success. Um, and so, you know, there, there has to be victories here in the short term too. And so, um, you know, on the field, off the field, in the classroom, just successes in life. Um, and, and, you know, it, the success is relative. So using sports, like some teams can have a realistic goal of going, you know, 18 and 0, and some teams can have a realistic goal of like, Hey, we need to win our first ever conference game this year. So, but once you set that, that goal or that vision for what success should be, there kind of is a scoreboard, right? You either went 18 and 0 or you either, or you didn't, or you either won your first ever conference victory or you didn't. Um, and so setting those, like to set realistic goals for yourself individually and for your program as a team um, is the starting point. Um, and then, you know, um, ultimately at the end of that process, being able to look back, whether you accomplish the goal or not, and ask yourself the question, am I better equipped to accomplish that goal again? So maybe we did go 18 and 0, but maybe it wasn't a product of anything that we had done so that we, that now I'm not capable of doing it again next year. It was just the ball bounced our way or the other team had a, you know, an injury or something. And so it, it happened to work itself out um, as opposed to, so success is essentially like setting that goal and whether or not you accomplish or not doesn't answer the success point of it. It's more, am I now better equipped to do it in the next goal that I set? Um, and so that's short-term success, long-term success is just like, you know, if, if you were being graded on a one to 10 scale as a 40 year old in 10 different categories, how many of those categories are going to, are you going to be rated at 10? Yeah, that's good. What, uh, what do you do to continue, uh, to strive for your own success? How do you personally continue to grow and develop? Um, let's say as a coach to start. Yeah. I mean, I think the first, first part of it is probably just making sure you're surrounding yourself by, um, by people that are going to challenge you by people that you can kind of trust and count on and delegate to. Um, I think it's really important. And so that could be your assistant coaches. That could just be like who you hang out with in your own department. That could be like within your coaching network, like people that you pick up the phone and call. Um, and, and, and things like that. So I think just surrounding yourself by people who are going to challenge you and, um, and, and, and bring out the best in you. Um, I think that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is like, um, and again, I don't, I don't, I don't know if this is right or wrong, but I have a tendency to like, um, focus on like what's right ahead of me as opposed to like this, this long planner. Um, 
And so like, I feel like when it's like quote unquote recruiting season, like I'm all in on recruiting and maybe the players in my program take a little bit of like a backseat. And I don't know if that's accurate. I don't know if the players in my program feel that way, but I'm not watching film in August. Mm -hmm. I'm recruiting in August. I'm not like, diagramming what our next best you know man up play is going to be in august i'm just focused in that's that's when we should be tackling you know recruiting or whatever and then the same thing goes like when our season rolls around it's like all right you know now it's like i'm not writing recruiting letters in february i'm like and and i don't know that this is good advice i would just say that you know I, i i i tend to focus on the things that are kind of right in front of my face as sure. opposed to like planning out, you know, and, and I realize it's probably not the right way to do it. I should probably plan out my day and have like, you know, 15 minutes every Wednesday devoted to recruiting or 15 minutes, you know, whatever. Um, but, um, but anyway, I, I tend to focus on kind of those, those things that are right in front of my face. Um, and, and I think that that um, at least, helps me in terms of, okay, this is my focus for today and I'm going to accomplish this, this, and this, as opposed to having this long list and never really being all in on any of it. Yeah. Um, and that was the point I was trying to make. So I guess that's, you know, surrounding myself with the right people to challenge me and then making sure that I remain focused on kind of what's important. And because you said coaching, I used, you know, recruiting or a man up pleasure sure. examples, but like when the pandemic hit in March, you know, and a lot of my colleagues were like zooming with their team every day and everything. Like what was right in front of my face in March was my family. Yeah. And my players and I have like what I, I, a relationship that they totally understand it. And they didn't need to be zooming with me four days a week. Um, And they knew that I needed to be, you know, everything that I could be for the four kids in my house and for my wife during that time. And so um, sometimes it's, you know, being able to focus and prioritize, um, not just your program and your profession and your job, but how your family and relationships, um, you know, outside of our jobs play a role in all of that as well. So, um, so yeah, I guess just like focusing in on and making, making sure that there's priorities, um, and you got to do that with your time. You got to do that, um, you know, with, with the relationships that you have in your life as well. Awesome. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think one other thing that, um, I've just noticed, you know, from you over, over the course of our time, uh, knowing each other is that, you know, you're definitely a, an ambassador to the game of lacrosse. Um, in a lot of ways, I know you serve on a lot of committees, you know, on the all American committee, a lot of other things with our coaching association. Um, but you're also doing a lot of things, for youth right now as well with, with C4 lacrosse and the edge showcase. Um, can you talk a little bit about those, those two things that you're doing right now uh, and, and why those things are important to you for uh, yourself as a coach, as, you know, as a father and um, you know, as an ambassador to the game? Yeah. Um, thanks for asking about this. I, I, I think like the reason I do a lot of stuff within lacrosse is because I don't have a ton of hobbies. And so I'm not so good at like, like I, I don't fish or hunt or play guitar or anything like that. And so it's not like when lacrosse stops, it allows for me to like, you know, 
I don't take two weeks off and go fishing. I, I, I don't have a lot of hobbies like that. And so lacrosse is kind of my hobby. So if I didn't get into coaching um, and I got a week off of my job, I would probably go do something with lacrosse. <laughs> um, and so that's why I spend a lot of time, you know, outside of like my responsibility as the coach at York within the game is because it, it is my truest hobby. Um, as far as, you know, C4 lacrosse here in central Pennsylvania or the edge showcase, which I guess is more of like a national effort. I would tell you that I've kind of learned throughout this process that um, there's a million ways to, to develop youth lacrosse. Um, and some of it, not all of it is good and not all of it is bad. And it's always somewhere kind of in the middle, you know, so there's some things about club lacrosse that I don't necessarily love, but there's a lot of things about club lacrosse that I do love. And there's some things about prospect days that I don't love, but there's a lot of things about prospect days that I do love. Right. It's just not, there's no perfect um, um, way to kind of develop, you know, youth lacrosse and, 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 and the recruiting process and all that kind of stuff. Um, but there's a simpler way and there was simpler times than what we're currently doing. And I think that's where a lot of what I'm trying to do stems from. I, I definitely miss the days of residential camps mm. where you're being coached by college coaches and, and getting recruited by them at the same time. Some of the best players I've ever, you know, got to work with as a college coach, I happen to work with at a camp. Um, you really get to know them um, they get to know you, you get to see their flaws, you get to see how they respond. You just get so much more than just sitting on the sideline. Um, and then, so anyway, so the Edge Showcase, I guess is because I'm talking this way, that's the first one to talk about. The Edge Showcase was was this brainchild, you know, with me and Coach Kadelka and, and Chris Przinski, who's an assistant at Jacksonville, of like, well, why, why can't we create a recruiting event that at the end of the event, if you didn't necessarily get recruited, you know, that really doesn't even matter to you because you, you, you got so much better while you were doing it. Um, it'd be really fascinating to take some like surveys after a club tournament that said, you know, how much better of a player did you become today? And then give surveys at like a residential camp or something where, and then ask them the same question. And I think, it would be really eye-opening to see that unanimously those like camp experiences make you a better player because you're hearing it from different voices. Not because I'm not saying that the college coaches are any better coaches than the club coaches. Um, I'm just saying sometimes hearing it in a different way um, can, can, can make a lot of sense to kids and can make them better yeah. or doing different drills than you've done since you know, you played in the same club program from fourth grade through 12th grade. So you do the same series of drills all the way up through it all because they kind of have their bank of way of doing it. So now you go to this residential camp and there's all these new ways of doing mm -hmm. it. Wow. Um, that was pretty cool. So the edge showcase kind of grew from this, like, you know, what if we coach these kids up and if we can recruit them along the way, great. Let's also invite a coaching staff to work with them. That ranges from, you know, some of the top teams in the country to a more developing program in the country so that every kid there, you know, will, will have a, a fit for their, their skill set. Um, and so that's where Ed Showcase came. And, and quite frankly, like, it isn't really going. I think the product's pretty cool, but the amount of participants isn't quite as good as we would have hoped it would be. 
And I think the reason for it is a couple. First of all, we're not businessmen, so we don't promote it well. Um, <laughs> it's like, you know, it's one of those things that after you're there, you're kind of like, oh, that was cool. I would do that again. But trying to get a new quote unquote participant is, is pretty challenging because we're not a business and we're not running it in that kind of a way. So that's a challenge. Um, you know, and, and the second thing is like, um, the calendar is so filled with club events now that it's, it's hard for parents and families to justify one more event. Um, yeah. and so it's, it's just a really, really crowded calendar year when it comes to these things. And I wish there was a way to solve both of them so that more families could participate in this um, and kind of see what it's all about. Yeah. Um, and then, and then these kinds of structure, which you've seen over like was because of the pandemic, um, you've seen more of these types of things sprouting up and the popularity and how it's growing so quick um, because now that more kids are doing it, they're, they're, they're seeing the value in it, which is cool. So I think it's all moving in a good direction. And that's not to say club lacrosse is, is bad or wrong. It's just different, and right. a different experience. And there's a lot of value in club lacrosse. As far as C4 lacrosse and here in central Pennsylvania, um, you know, it all kind of started when I first got here to York, you know, 10 years ago, like the sport was booming at the youth level here. And I just ran a camp in the summer and for little kids, just, it was fun. And that was about it. And I didn't, quite frankly, we were in good hands with growing the game at the youth level. And I wasn't as the new guy in town going to come and like flex my muscle like, oh, everybody should, you know, do this, this, and this, and this. And I know better because quite frankly, it was, it was great. Well, fast forward, you know, seven or eight years, my own sons started playing and they only had eight kids on their team and they had to play the same team three times in one season. And I was dawning on me like, oh, wow, like the numbers at the, cause I didn't see it. Right. Because right. How, how many college coaches, you know, are going to seven and eight year old games to see that. Right. I was seeing high school and there were plenty of numbers and plenty of teams and the teams in central Pennsylvania, you know, we're doing fantastic. So I just assumed everything was great. Well, then all of a sudden I went to my first ever seven and eight year old game and it was pretty eye opening that the numbers were dropping off like alarmingly quick. Hmm. Um, and that's when, you know, C4 lacrosse went from being one summer camp each summer to kind of a year round effort to try to grow the game in central Pennsylvania, which is a, about a lot more than just like club lacrosse, but you know, clinics and, um, weekly sessions and things like that um, to provide opportunities um, at a much more reduced cost than kind of what the normal lacrosse climate um, charges for things. Sure. We try to eliminate the barriers of entry to the sport of lacrosse in this area, I guess. Um, yeah. And so this new effort kind of started, um, it's, I guess a year ago now, um, start of 2020 was kind of the, all right, how do we, how do we try to grow the game here in central Pennsylvania? Um, so that those numbers that existed 10 years ago are back. Right. And trying to start something new in, in the middle of a pandemic had its challenges, but it was a heck of a lot of fun. I, I feel like I enjoyed coaching lacrosse and maybe it was because we didn't have a season sure. so I was starving for it, but it was enjoyable working with kids from the age of, you know, five all the way up to um, 12th graders mm. um, over the summer a little bit. That's awesome. Well, thanks for your work in that. That's, uh, that's awesome to hear about what you guys are doing and um, how passionate you are about it. So um, 
So I guess as we kind of come to a close with our time together today, uh, I wanted to ask a, a few fun questions, um, you know, just kind of some, some get to know you questions off the field um, and then wrap up our time with some closing thoughts. So you ready for some, some uh, heavy hitters? <laughs> bring them, bring them on Shaq. <laughs> uh, all right. So fun questions. Uh, favorite food. Um, anything with cheese on it, but Love it. <laughs> yeah, um, so pro probably Mexican, some sort of like, you know, burrito, sure. a whole bunch of cheese. <laughs> Just real emphasis on the cheese. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Uh, favorite place you've ever visited and why? Uh, I'll have to pick two. Awesome. Um, on a personal, um, like if it was just me, I would probably pick Lake Placid, New York. And outside of lacrosse, I've actually never been to the Lake Placid tournament before, and I've never been there when it was going on. But mm. I've been to Lake Placid, um, and there's just something about that town um, and and um, just the area. And I mean, Lake Placid. I, I would rather go to Lake Placid than the beach. Hmm. Um, and so Lake Placid would be for my own recharge, my own batteries as a place to go or a place to take my wife or something. Um, and then the second answer would be any amusement park with my daughter. Um, so we did do Disney world and my daughter loved Disney world. Um, so that would be, I guess the one, but because that's kind of tough to do and, and accomplish and cost a bazillion dollars, <laughs> any amusement park will do. Um, so awesome. my, my two answers. Awesome. Uh, favorite coaching book you've ever read? Um, probably inside out coaching by Joe Ehrman, um, like challenging healthy masculinity and the role of a coach. And I think, um, that was probably a good, I read that one like really early on in my coaching career. And I don't know how much of the, I, I like, um, utilized in my day-to-day -day at that young age but my overall thought process of coaching and what a coach should be and what coaching is all about certainly certainly had a lot to do with that that reading that book yeah. transformational coaching that's good uh favorite sport outside of lacrosse uh definitely basketball yeah. um probably not even close yeah um, yeah i grew up playing basketball love it it's my probably my favorite one to watch um, and certainly if I was going to try to recreate in any way today, I wanted to be basketball. Nice. Uh, greatest coaching memory. Oh man. Um, Oh, I've had a lot. I mean, I've been fortunate to have a lot of awesome memories. Um, you know, I, uh, You know, I, I, I'm having a hard time picking one because I don't want it to be just some sort of like on the field. You know, we won some big game memory um, and, and some of those, you know, you know, going back to when I was coaching you in our first ever conference game in the MAC and we beat Messiah, like that memory still gives, like makes the hair on my arm stand mm -hmm. up, um, you know, but, you know, and then everywhere I've, I mean, as a play, I, I don't know, like there's just been millions of memories like that. Um, I would tell you that, um, probably the best one that, that probably encompasses all of it is, uh, in 2018, 
we lost in the Elite Eight to RIT. And um, we had a heck of a, it was really cool. It was just like probably the, the best, I don't know, 10 or 12 day span of my coaching career happened at this time. We, we lost the conference championship. We were like, I don't know, 20 and two or something. And we lost the conference championship to Salisbury. And then the aftermath of that was that we got seated um, in the North bracket of the NCAA tournament. And so we actually hosted Western New England on a Wednesday. And then that Saturday we had to go to Amherst and play Amherst. <laughs> and uh, the traveling was crazy. We hit so much traffic. We were supposed to practice at Hartford. We hit so much traffic. We missed our practice time. Mm -hmm. So I was on the bus on stuck in traffic calling every coach and, and Andy Copeland came through at Fairfield. So we practiced the day before playing Amherst on, um, on half a field at Fairfield university while Fairfield prep high school was on the other half. <laughs> um, and it was all impromptu. And um, we went on to beat Amherst and I don't think we were favored to win. Um, and after we beat Amherst, we got in the bus and we drove straight back to York um, and got back to York at like two o'clock in the morning that night. Um, and then we had to go to RIT, um, on Wednesday. So now we got back from Amherst, Massachusetts, and now we're going to Rochester, New York. And, um, when we're headed to Rochester, we stopped and we practiced at Bucknell. And, and typically you practice at the site of the game, but because the sites were so far away, we decided to practice halfway and not try to get all the way there. So we were practicing at Bucknell before we we're going to play RIT and a tornado warning hits. Oh, gosh. <laughs> we have to stop practicing and we go into the, this, the, the away locker room at Bucknell and no one, you know, I doubt anyone who's listening to this has ever been in that locker room, but it's like under the bleachers. It was awesome. It was really cool, but we weren't allowed to leave. We couldn't get on the bus to leave. We couldn't practice until the tornado warning was gone. So our whole team is just hanging out in this like underneath the bleachers kind of locker room, um, just laughing and telling stories. And if you've ever been, I mean, anyone who's listened to this has probably been on a team. It's just like that moment, you know, that you're looking back. It was, it, but we didn't get to practice EMO and, you know, I'll probably have the exact percentage wrong, but I think RIT's EMO percentage was like 62% on the year. And we went into the game without practicing EMO. <laughs> so then we play RIT on that Wednesday night. They wanted to play the game at night. We agreed to it. So we played RIT um, at like seven o'clock at night. We lose the game um, and we get back to York at like six o'clock in the morning or something on Thursday. <laughs> And when we get back, everybody's exhausted. You know, we just, whatever. We just went on this wild, it was awesome. Like, I don't regret any of it. It was the best week. All the road, all the traffic and practice shifting. It was all, like, none of it I would have picked going into it. But now in the aftermath, I wouldn't have changed a thing is the yeah. way it was. And we get back and we're all exhausted and tired and the season's over and it was whatever. And all the team um goes into the locker room but i always like to be the last one off the bus to make sure that the bus is you know clean and meets my standard well it's just me and our captain and at york we have a singular captain so the only two people that are left on the bus after this whole thing this whole season you know is, has come to a, a close is me and our captain and he's laying on the ground like picking up a wrapper underneath um, one of the seats at the bus 
and I'm watching him. And I just said to him, like, why are you doing this? Like, just tell me so I can tell the rest of the players I ever coached, like whatever the answer is. Like, <laughs> I didn't say that. I just, this is what I was thinking in my head. Sure. Like whatever answer he gives me, I'm going to use for every captain that we ever have from now on. So that's why I asked the question, why are you doing this? And his response was, I just wanted to be the captain of this team one more time. Mm. And that was probably the best moment of my wow. coaching career. And, and I couldn't tell it without the whole story because yeah, yeah. beating Amherst to this day, that game is my favorite game we've ever been, I've ever been a part of as a player or a coach. And, you know, we won the conference championship in 2016, beating the number one team in the country. But there was just something about that Amherst game that tops it. But the way that that whole, you know, season ended, it had, it had given me a lot of validation that all of what we were putting into our culture and the idea of what I was talking about earlier with short-term success and long-term mm -hmm. success can coexist. I saw it all in that moment where our first team All-American singular captain, you know, was laying on the ground picking up trash when essentially his career had ended. Mm -hmm. um, so I, it was a long story to answer, I guess, a relatively simple question. Well, but I appreciate I it. wanted to give you an answer that was a little bit better than just, you know, we, we won a championship one time. Yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate that. That's, that's an awesome memory. Um, so as we round out our time here, uh, just wanted to finish up with some closing thoughts and, uh, you know, then, then kind of wrap things up. So who, who is a part of your coaching tree and whose coaching tree are, would you consider yourself to be a part of? Okay. Well, let's start on the history side first, and then we'll look into the crystal ball of my coaching tree. <laughs> Again, like I said earlier, I just picked Lynchburg because the people I met there and it just felt right. I had no idea that I was, you know, choosing to go into probably one of the largest coaching trees in the country. Um, so coach Kadelka played at Gettysburg college for coach Jancic who played at Hobart college for coach Yurick. Um, so I'd like to think that um, I, I live somewhere in Dave Yurick's coaching tree. Um, and if that's too far fetched or too hopeful to hope for, I would say I definitely live in coach Jancic's coaching tree. Um, I've worked enough of Coach Jancic's camps that sometimes, I, and I married a Gettysburg College alum, um, and I'm close friends with a lot of Gettysburg College lacrosse alums. And so in a weird way, I almost feel like I went to Gettysburg for a little <laughs> bit, certainly where I, 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 I certainly went to coaching school at Gettysburg and all those summers on their, on their campus. And so, um, so I definitely fall in kind of Coach Jancic's coaching tree, um, if not Coach Yurick's. Um, but um, as far as my coaching tree, I've been really fortunate. And I think it's one of my favorite things is to um, follow along of the guys that I coach that are still in coaching, and, you know, whether it be high school or college. And there's probably too many of, of them for me to, to rattle off. Obviously I'm looking at one on my zoom screen right now. Yeah. You fall into my coaching tree, which is awesome. I'll never forget the first day I met you um, and how it <laughs> happened. Um, and I'm, certain that on that day I didn't expect that you would be a college lacrosse coach um, 15 years <laughs> later. um and uh I mean Hoff and Sharbs uh, Mike Hoffmeister at Scranton and Dan Sharball Illinois Tech um you know Justin Gordon who played for me here at York um is uh is in college coaching um Ryan Cassidy like if any lacrosse people are listening to this they know Ryan um you know Ryan's a firefighter now but 
um, coached at High Point and, and coached here with me at York, and I coached him at Eastern End here at York. Um, you know, um, you know, there's there's so many that I can't even like rattle them all off, and I almost feel bad that I started naming names because I'm sure to have left guys off. But um, it's a lot of fun following their programs around, and it's super humbling to think that I actually have a coaching tree. Like, <laughs> so, uh, uh, but it's yeah. going to pride for me, that's for sure. Awesome. No, I appreciate that. Um, what advice would you give to young aspiring head coaches that you wish you knew before you were a head coach? Yeah, so I just, I learned this probably the hard way um, in 2019. But sometimes when you're, when you live your whole life in locker rooms, there's like a, there's a locker room language. I don't mean the words, but it's almost like our tone. Like you can, you can speak to people and, and, um, and coach people in using a certain tone that quite frankly is just inappropriate outside of that. And sometimes you don't realize it if you're in, in the same environment your whole life. And so you know, like I said earlier, like my dad was, you know, relatively laid back dad growing up. But if, if you, you pissed him off, like you were going to get a tone, like I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> and, and the same can be said for coach Godelka, right? Like, you know, like if, if, if you didn't execute something to his standard, like he's going to let you know, and I will forever be grateful for the fact that both my father and my college coach held me to a standard. And I knew when they meant business but you got to be careful to, to making sure you understand that that's not the norm. So something that I could say to like, I could go into our basketball coach's office right now and he and I could, you know, get into some sort of debate or something. And I could speak in a certain way because he grew up in locker rooms too, but I can't do that in the grocery store. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now everybody that's listening thinks I like freaked out on someone in a grocery <laughs> store. That's not what happened, but. I think sometimes that would be the advice I would give to myself earlier on, but it's the same advice I would give to, you know, my assistant here or anybody that's young that might be listening to this podcast is there's a time and place for your, your coaching, you know, um, kind of tone and the way that you're handling yourself. Um, and that isn't, that isn't like real life, you know, that's not. And, and I think, that's really important to understand at a young age um, because your intentions um, can be totally misinterpreted by your tone. And, um, and sometimes you can have, you know, a discussion off the field or outside the locker room or, or, or even with your spouse that you think like, Oh, I was just making this point but the point in your intentions is totally lost because your tone mm. was totally uncalled for given that environment. Sure. Um, and that's, I, like I said, it took me a long time. I learned this in 2019 the hard way. Um, and I really didn't think I had done anything wrong. Mm. And then as soon as someone pointed out to me what I'm pointing out right now, it was this aha moment. Mm. Um, and I, and I, and I think something I wish I had certainly had learned much earlier on. Mm. That's good. All right. Final, final thought. Finish the sentence. When it's all said and done, successful coaches are. Intentional. Intentional. That's great. Yeah. I think you can get so 
pulled in a million different directions nowadays. Um, and so remaining intentional with your time, with your relationships, um, you know, with your faith, whatever it may be, like um, being intentional. And I'm not saying I'm good at it. I'm just saying successful. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think you are good at it. Um, and I appreciate your time today, uh, coach. I just want to let you know that, you know, anyone listening to this, I think there's a lot of value in what you had to say today. And, um, you know, personally, I wouldn't be sitting here with you on this Zoom call if it weren't for you and your mentorship and love along the way uh, to a dumb 18 year old that wasn't very good at lacrosse. So uh, I appreciate your your passion and your time and the way that you uh, go about building relationships and fostering them. Um, so I'm very blessed and thankful to have known you for, I guess, you know, almost over 10 years now. Um, so uh, almost 13 years. So uh, I appreciate your time and uh, appreciate all you've done for me. Yeah. Yeah. Can I tell one story for anybody that knows you personally? Yeah. Right, I'm going to do this because this will show you my appreciation for you. Having said that. So when you were a freshman, I believe, um, we only had one goalie, Zach Reve, and he broke his thumb. And he broke his thumb playing Elizabethtown the Thursday before Eastern. And uh, my parents were living in Baltimore at the time. And so after that game, we lost what, by what felt like a million. Um, and then we, I was driving with my wife from Philadelphia to Baltimore for Easter because we had the weekend off for the holiday. And I took the entire drive down um, on the way to my parents' house for Easter thinking, okay, what are we going to do at the goalie position? And I'm not going to use this guy's name, but we had this really athletic midfielder who wasn't quite ready from like the X's and O's standpoint of things, but he was quick and he was athletic and we weren't utilizing him on like the first midfield line or whatever. And so I was like, all right, well, this kid's going to be our goalie or at least our backup. If Zach can play with a broken thumb, like this kid's going to be our goalie. But I guess I just didn't have it in my heart of hearts to ask him to be the goalie. So on the drive back to Philly, I was like, okay, so how am I going to get, you know, such and such to, to be the goalie without just coming out and saying, Hey, I need you to be the goalie. And so I guess I just left it in God's hands and I decided to have a team meeting and ask for volunteers. And my hope was that this athletic midfielder was going to just shoot his hand up and I was going to pick him. Well, before I could get, the word we need I think I got we need out but before I could get the words a goalie your hand shot up as fast as humanly possible and I remember thinking oh <laughs> 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 that was not the player I had <laughs> um but I think it was the best thing that ever happened uh to the program there I think it's the best thing that happened to you um, and I did leave it to God and he had different plans than I had on that drive and it all seemed to work out pretty darn good. Um, but that story for anybody who's listening, it's going to be fun because they probably know the player that I had in mind <laughs> and they probably forgot that you ever played defense. Um, yep. they probably only thought you were ever a goalie, but, um, <laughs> but that story, um, you know, I probably could have used that story as my best coaching memory, um, but, uh. But yeah, no, that was the start of your goalie career. And I think like, I, I'd like to think in turn the start of your coaching career right then and there. So 
very cool moment. Very much think that's the case. So I appreciate that. Um, awesome. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All the best of luck here with a healthy 2021, Shaq. Yes, same to you. And uh, love you, coach. Have a good rest of your day. Stay safe. And um, yeah, good luck this year. You too, bud. Thanks. And that's our show. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Coach Childs as much as I did. He's a great man and a great coach, and I thought had a lot of great information to share with us today. With his interview comes the final episode of season one of Coaching Trees. I hope you enjoyed everything that you heard, and I really deeply appreciate you listening to the podcast, and I hope you got an opportunity to learn a lot from the great coaches we got to interview. I'm looking forward to season two coming up, hopefully sometime this fall, and really looking forward to getting back to interviewing some other great coaches in the future. If you like what you heard today and other days in our other episodes, please give us a rating, give us some feedback. I'd love to hear from you and more about what you think about the podcast. Thank you for your time, and until next time, stay safe and keep watering your trees.